Good morning. This is Ruth chapter 4. It's printed in your bulletins or you can turn in your Bibles if you have them. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. And so Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, and sit here. And he turned aside and sat down. And then Boaz took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. And so they sat down. And then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and then I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. And then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, and drew off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, whom I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life, and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, is more to you than seven sons. She has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And that's how the, the book of Ruth ends. Now, where we began reading, that's an odd place to jump into a story. If you weren't here in the last few weeks, I'm going to have to get you up to speed. So the book of Ruth happened in, a time, in the time of the judges, when there was no king in Israel. And you should hear in that a certain kind of ugly dangerous lawlessness. 
I mean, the most frequently spoken words in the book called Judges is, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was a hard, harsh time, and there was rarely peace in Israel. So the three main characters in this story, uh, the book of Ruth, are Ruth, who was a widow and a foreigner, her destitute mother-in-law, Naomi, and Boaz, an honorable man of Israel, described as their guardian redeemer. We'll talk a little bit about what that means. And the three of them, the three main characters in this book, are surrounded by the swirling violence at the time of the judges. To make things worse, a famine struck the land, and there was not enough for everyone to eat. So Naomi and her family all packed up their stuff and moved across the border to the most ugly, brutal, lawless nation of them all, which was the neighboring nation of Moab. Moab was notorious in the ancient world for basically being the country where anything goes. Murder, incest, child sacrifice. I mean, these things are all literally stuff that Moab is famous for. Um, the word, all the worst things happen in Moab. And they didn't just happen there. They were celebrated in Moab. So it was a terrible place to go. But they had food and Israel didn't. So Naomi and her family went to Moab. And her sons married Moabite women, including Ruth. Tragedy struck. Naomi's husband and sons all died, including Ruth's husband. We don't know what happened to them. Maybe it was sickness. Maybe they were murdered. Maybe they still couldn't get enough to eat in Moab because they were foreigners and and outsiders there after all. And they came from Israel, which was a hated enemy of Moab. In the ancient world, losing your husband and your sons meant that you were completely destitute. So unless you were a fairly wealthy family and you had accumulated some, some means to live on, uh, then losing your, son and your, and your hu- sons and your husband means you lost all your income and you'd have very, very few options for survival. And so for Naomi and Ruth, this was the worst thing that could have ever happened to them. There was nothing left for Naomi to do in Moab, so she decided to go back to Israel. And Ruth, surprisingly, decided to go with her, even though she didn't know anybody there besides Naomi. So she moved to Israel with Naomi, And just as Naomi's family had been desperate foreigners in Moab, now Ruth is a desperate foreigner in Israel. See, so the the roles have reversed a little bit. The end of chapter 3, which Brad preached on last week, Ruth proposes marriage to this man, Boaz. Naomi had concocted sort of a trick to, ha- to sort of a-, a plan to help trick Boaz into marrying Ruth because, that, and because that's how things were done in the time of the judges. If you wanted justice, you had to basically trick people into it. But Ruth altered the plan and appealed to Boaz on the grounds of the ancient tradition of leveret marriage, which is a key feature here in chapter 4. So, leveret marriage is a completely foreign idea to us. We don't have anything like it today. And so I'm going to take a minute to describe exactly what's going on here and why, why this was practiced at all. If a married man died with no heir, then it was expected that the man's brother would marry his widow. And what happened next was actually the most crucial part of it. Their firstborn son would be raised in the name of the deceased as if he was the father. And the inheritance would continue in the name of the first husband, not the second one. That's a key piece. Leveret marriage was very widely practiced in the ancient world. And we find Israel's practice of it described in Deuteronomy chapter 25. I'll read just a couple of verses of it. There's a sort of a lengthy paragraph describing Israel's practice of leveret marriage. But this is what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 25, 
as he's writing the laws of Israel down so that they may have them and, and live them out when they enter into the promised land. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name, that his name the dead brother's name, would not be blotted out of Israel. So that was the expectation given in the law of Israel. Why was this a widespread practice? Why would people do this at all? There's really two major reasons why you would have something like levirate marriage. The first was the matter of the land and its inheritance and the carrying on of someone's name. In Israel especially, land was important. When God brought Israel into the promised land, the land was divided up between the 12 tribes and then into the various clans and then into the various families of Israel. And God promised that if Israel was faithful to the covenant, then they would enjoy the promised land forever. So leveret marriage was intended to preserve that permanent, forever nature of the covenant with God and to ensure that no family in Israel would be lost to history. The point was to prevent their name and their inheritance from being absorbed into somebody else's name and inheritance and that legacy to be lost forever. It's trying to prevent that. So the first reason for leveret marriage has a very long-term focus. This is a very, very much a preserve something for all eternity kind of reason. The second reason for leveret marriage was, much more, was a much more shorter-term need. Leveret marriage was just a very effective way of protecting and providing for widows. Widows like Naomi and Ruth were incredibly, incredibly vulnerable in the ancient world. I mean, they were essentially the most vulnerable people in the ancient world. It would have been very easy for an evil-minded person to take advantage of them in any number of ways. And leveret marriage was designed to protect them. So those are really the two reasons why, in the ancient world, uh, this was a thing that people did at all. But don't forget that this was a time of nearly complete lawlessness in Israel. So even though the law required leveret marriage, as best we can tell, it was not at all commonly practiced. In fact, other than the example here in Ruth, that's the one positive example of leveret marriage in the entire Bible. All of the other examples in the Bible are uh, negative examples, or there's even instances where the practice is mocked. So why wasn't it taken more seriously? Why would, if this is what the law, if this was a common cultural practice, why would people not do it? It wasn't taken more seriously in actual practice because people were too concerned about their own legacy, their own name in their own land, to be concerned about the legacy of others. The general attitude was, why invest in someone else's name and land? Why spend all the time managing property and raising a child if you wouldn't personally gain from it? If your legacy was not being bolstered, why would I do this on behalf of someone else? And so they didn't. Those who study the ancient world believe that leveret marriage was actually very rare. So, that's it. That's the background. Now that we're up to speed on the background, let's look a little more carefully at the passage. And then I'd like to finish up our time in Ruth looking by, look, by considering what happens to each of the people mentioned in chapter 4. So we'll look at each of the characters, but first let's just look at a couple major features of the text here. Look at verses 1 through 6. Boaz went to the gate. In those days, the gate was basically like the city hall or county courthouse. And there he spoke to another man who was a closer relative to Naomi and Ruth than Boaz was. And so the duty of entering into leveret marriage with Ruth and redeeming the family first belongs to this other guy. 
Um, it's, it's, there's, you know, maybe there's privileges associated, but it's his duty. I mean, this is the job of families to do this, to protect each other. It's like going to somebody and saying, hey, look, there's a widow who's in desperate need. Are you, will, are you, are you willing to do something? So the character of this first redeemer is revealed in the conversation that follows. When he hears that there's land to be gained, he's ready to go. He's ready to be the redeemer. I'm in. This tells us that he has the means to buy the land. He has the means to farm it and profit from it and so on. This is not a a situation where he's unable. He's ready and willing to go. But when he heard there's a widow involved, he backs out. And he backs, the text actually tells us right there in, uh, in chapter, uh, I'm sorry, in verse uh, 6. He says right there that he backs out because he doesn't want to run, raise up a son in someone else's name and then turn the land and the inheritance over to him. When he was able to personally profit from it, he was ready to go. Full speed ahead. But as soon as he found out that his cut in all of this might not be what he imagined it would be, suddenly he backs out and says, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. The fact that there were vulnerable widows involved didn't matter to him. Actually, it did matter to him. It made him not want to do it. Uh, Nor did it matter that there was a close relative who died, and the lineage was about to go out. I mean, this is something that was important to God. He put it in the law, but this guy doesn't care about that. He's not very interested this man's self-centered view of these matters caused him to back out and to protect his own inheritance. So verses 7 through 12, this is when Boaz makes it official. Today we exchange rings, but in this story it's swapped sandals that seal the deal, right? So I'm kind of waiting for that one to become like one of the wedding, you know, there's all, people are always inventing new wedding traditions. I can't wait for the swapped sandals thing to happen. That's going to be great. Uh, In verses 13 to to 17, we hear about how Boaz's redemption of Ruth affected Naomi. According to Naomi's friends, what Boaz and Ruth have given her is worth more than seven sons. I mean, having just one son meant safety and security in your old age. But seven sons, that's a heaped abundance of safety and security. And this is not Naomi walking around and saying, hey guys, guess what I have? I have what's equivalent of seven sons. This is other people in the neighborhood noticing how blessed she is and coming to her and saying, you know, you're, you're more blessed than somebody who has seven sons. That's how great this is. And notice what name the friends give the baby. This is an odd thing that it says right there. They named the baby. Her friends come and name the baby this phrase, and it's not uncommon in the Bible to have sort of a phrase name. Uh, and and, and one that describes you. And so they give him this phrase name, and it describes him like this. It says, a son has been born to Naomi. Wait, I mean, if you're Ruth and you hear that, you know, you think, well, I'm the one that did the labor and all that stuff, right? But no, it's the friends come and they say, a son has been, has been born to Naomi. And they're, they're really, they're catching the symbolism of all of this. This is to Naomi. She who could never have a child again, given her age, has been given a son. And this uh, echoes so many other stories in the Bible, from Sarah, the wife of Abraham, to um, Hagar, to H- Hannah, to, uh, to Mary, even the mother of Jesus. This is a common theme in the Bible, is that the woman who can't have a child has a child. And here we see it in the story of Ruth. So the final part of this book is a genealogy, verses 18 to 22, and it's, it's an odd way to end. But remember that Ruth sits between the, uh, the book of Judges, and actually a lot of people think that 
Ruth is actually part of the book of Judges. Like maybe it was even originally written as one book and then it was separated out. And then the book that immediately follows is this, this is the book of 1 Samuel, which is the story of basically the rise of David. Um, and so this, it ends here. It says, uh, it gives you this lineage of, uh, from Perez, who is uh, the first post-patriarch, like, you know, the great patriarchs of Israel. This is the first generation after them. And it runs all the way to David, the first great, great king of Israel. So uh, it turns out that Boaz and Ruth were the great-grandparents of the great king David himself. So who knows? Maybe in their old age, they even saw him as a baby. Maybe they even held David, and they had no idea that this is going to be the greatest king in Israel. And of course, speaking of genealogies, we know that uh, Ruth and Boaz and um, Boaz's mother Rahab all end up in the genealogy of Christ in the Gospels. So that's kind of a look at the text to show uh, some of the things that we, we want to notice as we read through it. I'd really like to finish our time in the book of Ruth by briefly looking, what, looking at what each of the, the people in this final scene. Let's look at each one of them and um, let's, let's learn something about them and something from them. Here's, our, here's kind of our question that I'm going in with. So Boaz was a great guy and Ruth was a great gal and they got married and had a great kid and they lived happily ever after. So what? You know, how is that supposed to change my life? How does that, I mean, I live now uh, 3,000, 2,500 years later. Um, let's, let's look and see at how, how this maybe impacts me and, and how I should think and, and what I should be. So consider, consider all of the, we'll consider all the characters that occur here in Ruth chapter 4. Let's start with the elders. In verse 2, Boaz took, the ten el- took ten of the elders of the city and had them witness and confirm this discussion about who will redeem Ruth. What did they think Boaz, what did they think when Boaz asked them to participate in this discussion? Maybe they thought, Boaz is a good and honorable man. Perhaps this is something important and worth our attention. After all, they participated in negotiations like this daily. I mean, it was their job to sit at the gate and do this. But if they were... If they were like nearly all of the leadership in Israel at the time of the judges, if they were like nearly everybody else that we read about, then they probably took a more cynical view of it. They might have thought, who cares what happens to this foreign widow? I can't believe we're wasting time on this. I have other more important things to talk about. Maybe they were hoping some of the the money of this transaction would flow their way in the form of a bribe or something like that. But notice this. Notice that there is an enormous gap between what they saw when they sat down to hear those two guys speak and what God was doing in that conversation. There was an enormous gap there. They thought they were sitting down to listen to yet another mundane dispute about an insignificant person. But what God was doing in that moment would ultimately prove to be nothing less than the salvation of his people. How often do we experience that same gap? We think of our daily lives as the grind, and we see most of what happens to us as as mundane, as momentary, and as meaningless. But how does God see those same events? In the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, question number one, God preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things 
must work together for my salvation. And so for those who are united to Christ, everything works for their salvation, even down to the hairs falling out of their head. So how often are we like the elders in Boaz's city, which we learn is Bethlehem, by the way. Um, Elders in that city who sit down to something that we think is barely worth noticing, but meanwhile, God is at work establishing his kingdom around us and in us and by his grace even through us. I titled this sermon, Don't Pass This Up. And that's a worthwhile thing to consider at all times, but I think especially in this Advent season. A baby was born in this city, the city of Bethlehem, and nothing could appear less significant than that baby being born that night. Isaiah the prophet described the person of Jesus as having no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. The Apostle Paul described the thing that Christ built, the church, his people, as a bunch of sinners who are not wise, powerful, or noble. But very little in the kingdom of God is what it appears to be, at least from our perspective. And so may God give us eyes to see what he is doing and faith to be confident in him, even when we can't see his hand. That's something that we can learn from the elders in this story. So secondly, Naomi. I mean, can you believe how this ends for Naomi? I mean, throughout the entire book, she is, I mean, essentially through the whole book, she's bitter and cynical. In one sense, that's understandable. I mean, we get it, because things had been really hard for her. But throughout the story, her, contra- her contributions are not, very, are not very constructive. She blames God and tries to scheme to get ahead. All that's, 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 her, that's her contribution to the story. And then at the end, all the women in her neighborhood marvel when she receives blessing upon blessing. That's the arc of Naomi's story. So from Naomi, we learn that God's salvation is not deserved. Nothing Naomi had done deserved God's favor. And yet he heaped it upon her with such abundance. He gave her Ruth and then Boaz and then their son. And he took the widow who had lost everything and he gave her immeasurably more than she could ever ask or imagine. And that's exactly how our Father in heaven loves us. On our own, we're like Naomi. We're on a a trajectory toward tragedy and lamentation. We think that our schemes and our efforts will get us ahead and maybe even make us worthy of God's love. And then we get angry at him when, when all that blows up in our faces. But God intervenes anyway. And he blesses us anyway in, in ways that we had written off as impossible. This could never happen, we say. And yet that's exactly what he does. So don't pass up. Don't pass up noticing. Don't pass up seeing the way that God heaps his grace in our lives. We see his kindness especially in the gift of his son who changed places with us so that we who deserve nothing will receive the width and the length and the height and the depth of God's love. That's what we can learn from Naomi. So the third thing is Ruth. Third person we look at is Ruth. At every single point in this story, the most natural and easy thing for Ruth to do would be to look out for herself and to push and to pull and to do whatever it takes to pull herself up, to better her position. And that's even what Naomi advised her to do at a really crucial point. But instead, Ruth continually put herself in vulnerable positions on behalf of others. I mean, look at every scene Ruth is in. 
And she, every, in every scene, she puts herself in a vulnerable position on behalf of someone else. She did so with confidence. But hers is not a blind faith in an undeserving person. Her story actually reads a lot like the heroes of the faith described in Hebrews chapter 11 who were certain of things that were only hoped for and convicted of things that were not yet seen. Ruth was a stranger in an exile on the earth, but she was also looking ahead to things promised, having seen and greeted them from afar. In that way, she was like uh, her new mother-in-law, Boaz's mother, Rahab. That's the Rahab, famous Rahab from Jericho, who did not perish with those who were disobedient, but instead joined the people of God and was commended through her faith. Her eyes were fixed on the God who is faithful and worthy of trust. That's the way Hebrews describes her. And Ruth was like her, and in that way, we are called to be like Ruth. It's hard for us. On our own, we trust nothing more than ourselves, our own perspectives, our own thoughts, our own emotions. Those are the most real and true and earnest things in our lives, is our own perspective, our own thoughts, and our own emotions. But don't pass up, in, this, in, in reading this, this book of Ruth, don't pass up Ruth's testimony that God is more trustworthy than we are. He's more trustworthy than our perspective, our thoughts, and our emotions. And so the thing we can learn from Ruth, we can, we can pray and ask that God would, God would give us Ruth's eyes of faith. That's what we can learn from Ruth. The fourth person we'll consider is Boaz. From Boaz, we can learn uh, many things, but one of them is that God's salvation comes through brokenness and through disappointment. And when Ruth married her first husband, Malon, I'm sure she didn't envision till death do us part happening quite so soon. I'm sure that after so much tragedy in her family, everyone was asking, how could God possibly bring anything good out of this? And some of us here are wondering the very same thing about the circumstances of our lives. How could God possibly bring anything good out of this? But isn't that exactly how God works? Those are the fingerprints of his activity. I mean, we can all, I I think we can all think back to times in our life when we thought nothing good could possibly come out of this. But looking back now, we can see how God used those times to build us up, not tear us down. And I think that's redemption in real time, right? Redemption is the supernatural work of God. We can see and learn a lot of things from Boaz, but don't miss how God's salvation always comes through brokenness and disappointment. And thanks be to God for that, because that's something we all experience. Lastly, let's look at one other character in this chapter, one that would be pretty easy to overlook. This is the last, the last character in the chapter, is the man who's called the closer relative. It would be easy to overlook the man that, uh, who talked with Boaz about Ruth because we never learn his name or anything else about him. This, the notes of this one conversation are all we have about him, and it's, it's really not very much. But consider this. We don't have his name. We don't have his name because, exactly because, he wrote himself out of the story. He thought he was writing his own legacy in that moment, but he was actually destroying it. 
It's actually common in the storytelling of the ancient world. People were often left nameless to demonstrate how they had written themselves out of the story. Ancient kings, for example, would scrub away the record of rival kings, effectively erasing them from history. And there are actually quite a few biblical examples of this too. I'll mention just a couple. For centuries, people wondered, which of the pharaohs was it that held Israel in slavery? You know, that Moses went through and said, let my people go. It's only been in very recent years that archaeologists believe that they've identified which pharaoh that was. But for centuries, people wondered why. I mean, wondered who he was. And the reason is because the text never said his name. The whole text of the Bible never says Pharaoh Ramses or whatever. It just says Pharaoh. It turns him into this generic thing. He writes himself out of the story. He wanted to make himself and his name great. And if you think about, if you just kind of think hypothetically about how things could have gone, he could have been one of the greatest figures in the history of redemption, right? In the history of salvation of God's people. If, if only he had said, oh, absolutely. I'm going to let, I'm going to go with my blessing, Right? He could have been celebrated by the people of Israel for, for all time. That would have been truly great. He's trying to be great. That would have been great. But instead, he wrote himself out of the story. And for millennia, people have said, I wonder who that was. I don't know. Here's another biblical example. Remember the rich young ruler who came and spoke to Jesus? What was his name? But well, we don't know, because the text doesn't tell us. He was an important guy, right? Or else the text wouldn't have called him the rich young ruler. I mean, you don't get that title by being a nobody, right? He's the rich young ruler. But he's so concerned with his wealth and his status that he chooses not to follow Jesus. I mean, just think about, again, the hypotheticals. He could have been one of the followers, one of the disciples who was following Jesus, who we read about later in the New Testament. We could read about him in the Gospels. We could read about him in the, in the book of Acts. He could have been a key figure in this whole story. But instead... He wrote himself out of the story. The same is true of the man that Boaz spoke to, the closer relation to Naomi and Ruth. We don't know his name because he wrote himself out of the story. If he had, hypothetically, if he had fulfilled his duty as the closest redeemer, we would still be celebrating him today. But instead, he was too busy protecting his own inheritance to notice what God was doing around him. So I almost entitled this sermon, Don't Be Like That Guy. <laughs> but I thought that would be too focused on this one character. The story of what God is doing in the book of Ruth is so much bigger than just this one guy. But more than, think about it, more than anybody else in the story, this guy passed up something wonderful. Which makes me ask, how, how often are we like him? How often do we avoid something that God has called us to do? thinking that we're looking after our best interests, but actually we're not. I think this is, this is such a chronic American problem. It's a chronic human problem, really. We're so, commuted, we're so committed to defining and shaping ourselves and our lives in just a, such a certain way. We think that we're creating a life of flourishing for ourselves, but in reality, we're doing exactly the opposite. What appears to be wholeness and freedom turns out to be a trap. The call of God on us, his ways and his law, they don't, see, they don't always seem very appealing to us. It seems like too many thou shalts for our taste, or at least that's how we like to marginalize it and push it away. I don't, I'm not into being told what to do. I'm not into God's law. That Just, no. 
We believe, uh, we don't believe that, that following the path of God is actually a good life. There are a thousand other paths that seem more appealing. But the Apostle Paul described the way of following Jesus as a life of increasing, growing, expanding love, joy, peace, and many, many other traits that actually, when you think about them, aren't, the, aren't those the very kinds of things that we're looking for? Don't we wish that our lives were filled with love, joy, peace? Isn't that the very thing we're looking for? I mean, uh, Brian already pointed it out about the, I mean, what does every Christmas card say? I mean, even the ones that have nothing to do with Jesus. I mean, the Starbucks decorations say love, joy, peace. These are things that culturally we are begging for. According to the scripture, according to the Bible, you can have all of those things in growing, expanding measure. It's the very kind of thing we're looking for, but we're looking in the wrong places. We're trying to create them for ourselves. We're trying to uh, generate them on our own, apart from the God who made us, the God who died for us, the God who saves us. We think that a thousand other things will make us happier than Jesus, but exactly the opposite of that is true. If we put our faith in anything else, we will end up crushed by it. But if we put our faith in him, then we will, then we will find everything that we need. So in this season of Advent, as we anticipate the celebration of Christmas, don't pass this up. Don't let the many distractions of the season turn your attention away from the one who came to free us from our bondage, and our, our bondage to sin and to self. So Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and that you may have it to the full. So whatever you do, don't write yourself out of this story. Whatever you do, don't write yourself out of this story. Draw closer to him and then you will find the meaning, the satisfaction, and the true flourishing that you have always wanted. Amen.